We think about murder mysteries as page-turners. For lots of fans, the physical act of reading these books, of racing through the story and seeing the number of unread pages dwindling towards the solution, is part of the joy. But for a great many people, their main contact with detective fiction, in particular the stories of Agatha Christie, is via film and television adaptations. For a huge global audience, Christie's work is as often watched as it is read. This is nothing new. The first film based on a Christie short story was The Passing of Mr Quinn, which appeared in 1928, and many more followed throughout her life and afterwards. Interest in transforming Christie's stories and novels for the screen is still as strong as ever. In the last few years, the BBC has produced a succession of new adaptations by the screenwriter Sarah Phelps, with a new one shown every Christmas. The national interest in these productions is so great that newspapers write stories about every aspect of them, and speculate endlessly as to what bits of the plot will remain the same, and what will change. Given the intense scrutiny and the vast existing canon, I wanted to investigate this phenomenon further. What is it really like to adapt an Agatha Christie today? Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Sarah Phelps is a British screenwriter with a long list of very well known credits. She's written dozens of episodes of the iconic soap EastEnders and has adapted J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy and The Cuckoo's Calling for television. Adaptations are a bit of a specialty with her, with her versions of Oliver Twist and Great Expectations broadcast by the BBC in 2007 and 2011. More recently, she's become well known for her adaptations of Agatha Christie novels and short stories, starting with And Then There Were None, which aired in the UK over Christmas in 2015. That was followed by The Witness for the Prosecution and Ordeal by Innocence. And for Christmas 2018, she's written a new version of Christie's 1936 Poirot novel, The ABC Murders. Her process, she says, is all centred around the novel or story she's adapting. I read the novel, I read the novel or the, or the short story, and I sort of go away and think about it a bit. And at the moment, because I'm filming something else, so my attendant, I'm, I'm working on something else at the same time. So over Christmas, I'll be doing a big read of the next one that we think the next what, what the next one is going to be, and we start talking in the new year. However, before she got the job of writing these adaptations, she wasn't a big reader of Agatha Christie, and she's deliberately not caught up on all the novels because she wants to approach each story she's adapting as freshly as possible. Because I came to this with very unfamiliar with Agatha Christie, and because I want to remain shocked and surprised by her, I. And I've decided to kind of, how can I, limit my reading, as it were, so I can be really surprised, so I don't have a background of there's this trope there or that happened somewhere else. or Because over the course of a writing career of over 50 years, you're going to get things that, that are reiterations. And I don't want to do that thing where I go, oh, I remember that from something that she wrote in 1927 and now she's writing in 1962. I want to be kind of, surprised by it and shocked and unnerved so I try to limit what I'm I try to limit what I read to the thing that I think we're going to be working on next if that makes sense the key for her she says 
is replicating that same sense of shock she feels when first discovering the twist in Christie's plot for the viewers of the TV adaptation. I want it to... So the thing that struck me and the thing that surprised and shocked and unnerved me, I want to, I want to write about that. I want the, the audience, when they're watching it, to go, oh, God, as if this story hasn't been told before or as if this hasn't been read before. That's what I try... I really want to keep that sense of freshness and surprise and suddenness and, and unfamiliarity. I, I, I want her to be unfamiliar rather than to be, oh, yes, we know where we are. We've been in this landscape before. I, I, I want it to feel like it's the first time the story's ever been told. The temptation with adaptations, especially when working with a really well-known text like an Agatha Christie or a Charles Dickens novel, is to get dug into all the previous versions. I don't want to know. I just want the book to speak to me. I'm adapting a novel, not adapting other people's adaptations of that novel. Like, for example, the first adaptation I ever did um, for TV was Oliver Twist. Now, I don't think there's a book that's been adapted more than Oliver Twist. I mean, it's lunatic how many various adaptations, film, TV, screen, radio, whatever, have um, theatre have have been done um, on Oliver Twist. And I just kept thinking, well, I don't want to watch anything else. I mean, apart from the musical Oliver, because there's no escaping that, because my mum took me to see it. But I didn't watch any other adaptations. All I read was the book. And if you just read the book and you don't look at anything else and you don't read anything else but that book, I think you get something right to the essence of it. Because sometimes we're familiar with the adaptations. We're familiar with those those stories but we're not we we've lost touch with the novel and and the details of the novel and what the novel is actually about and so that's my rule of thumb for adaptation sarah's adaptations are often really dark and with the way she handles the plots she really digs into the vicious motives that lie beneath the polite veneer of christie's characters these depths came as a surprise to sarah she says when she first started looking in detail at Christie's writing. I did think that she was rather kind of cosy and rather kind of, here's the village green or here's the big house. Somebody's on the floor. Was it a poker? Was it somebody with a candlestick? But what really surprised me when I read and then there were none was just how savage it was, that it was utterly remorseless and that it was very, very cruel and strangely subversive with this weird gallows humour. And I, I loved it. And I kept thinking... Actually, what this is, is this is about the rhythms of Greek tragedy, but where action begets action begets action, and you are heading towards your end, towards your judgment, and nothing you do or say is going to help. And I felt really excited by that, and I felt that, you know, it was pretty much written and published in the same year, which was 1939, and I kept thinking, God, if there was ever a story which reflected what it might be like to stand on the brink of the edge of the world as we plummeted again into another world war. Then, then, and then there were none felt like that story. Her adaptation of And Then There Were None emphasises the isolation and horror of its setting, with ten strangers marooned on an island being picked off one by one by a foe identified only as U.N. Owen, or Unknown. It's a deeply creepy book about morality and justice, as well as containing a really clever murder mystery plot. It's Agatha Christie's best-selling novel, and indeed one of the best-selling books of all time. When Sarah came to start adapting it, it showed her a whole new side to Agatha Christie, the supposedly staid author of Pleasing Little Puzzles. So I kind of took that shock and that nightmare quality and 
and and wrote that. That was so. I wrote that surprise and that shock and that thrill of going, God, you really actually you're not who I thought you were at all. You're there's a real. This is you know why isn't this in the modernist canon? And you're actually quite a you're a subversive and tricksy writer. That's what I thought about her. If you're interested in this secretly difficult and even radical side to Christie's work, I recommend you check out episode three of this podcast which is all about the queer subtext of classic crime fiction. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. For Christmas 2018, Sarah Phelps has adapted The ABC Murders, a Poirot novel from 1936 in which the Belgian sleuth has to pit his wits against a serial killer who is slaying people with alliterative names in alphabetical order. In her approach to it, she decided to set it in a particular moment in 1930s British history, one which has a lot of resonances with today. The book is written and set in the 1930s, and I put it very specifically in 1933, which is the rise, you know, is when British Union of Fascists started to gain serious political traction. And I just felt that without even forcing anything, those contemporary resonances were there. Here is the famous Belgian francophone detective who arrived in Britain as part of the um, the, the exodus from Belgium when the, uh, during the German invasion in 1933. When the when the when the feeling towards people who you know, had been refugees, were, was, had to change really violently. And the length, from when I was doing my research, the language is absolutely that of Brexit and Trump. And I sort of did lots of deep dives into some, into a lot of, um, into, in, in, you know, into my historical research. 
and into some really very strange websites, which I wouldn't want anyone to go and look at because it's 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 you know nightmarish really. Um, and found these ex- these extraordinary details, you know, the language of the posters and the kind of the lyrics to the BUS marching songs, and these are, they really put a shiver they put a shiver up your back that these were chanted on you know Britain's streets um, when we know they were. So it just gave that background for my Hercule to 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 have to fight his fight his way through it as you know to, to find this serial killer who taunts him endlessly with these letters. Um, it just felt like it, you know, created this really dangerous world. And to be reminded, it, it is a dangerous world. There is danger everywhere. Somebody hears you speaking in the wrong accent and they could hurt you. And it, it felt really timely and felt really relevant to absolutely of its time, but absolutely of ours, because these things are cyclical. They, you know, they, these, moods, these sort of belches of horror don't go away. They just lie dormant waiting for the next economic crisis to sort of bring them alive again. The character of Hercule Poirot is introduced in Agatha Christie's first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, published in 1920. The book is set around 1916. Poirot, who had been a police detective in Belgium before the First World War, has recently arrived in England as a refugee after the German invasion of his country. Throughout the following 32 novels that he appears in, he is frequently belittled and dismissed by other characters as a mere foreigner, an insult that he usually brushes off or turns to his advantage when detractors underestimate him. The plight of the outsider and its possibilities for a detective was a theme Christie returned to often. Sarah Phelps's adaptation of the ABC murders is the first time that she's worked with one of Christie's recurring sleuths, and she took great care in how she approached the character, given how familiar he is and how many existing and recognisable portrayals of him there are. All detectives have a backstory. Mm. You've got a huge canon, you see, of of, of Poirot and, and, and Poirot's familiarity to, to the reading public, to the viewing public. I mean, it, that silhouette, that name, that sort of essence is, is so familiar. I mean, it's, it's part of our cultural landscape. And because I, like I say, I was unfamiliar with him, I thought that that felt really, really useful to me because all the questions that the killer asks of him were the questions that I was asking of him, which is, who are you? Mm. You know, who, you know, who are you? I'm going to come and find me and and I'm going to just keep nudging you to get at the truth of who, to, to get at who you are and this public persona of Poirot. And behind that is Hercule, the private man. And I wanted to write about Hercule, the private man, to kind of bring bring a different, not a different, but perhaps bring, you know, the, you know, and we all have public personas. And I was just interested in who he might be as Hercule. And um, so I, I, I write right down to the fact that when in the script, I, I never, you know, whenever it was his character heading, it was never Poirot, it was always Hercule. Mm. So he gets called, you know, in the same way that the killer addresses him as Hercule. Um, I addressed him as Hercule all the way throughout the script as well. John Malkovich plays Hercule Poirot in this adaptation. And it's a mark of how beloved and familiar Christie's character is that rumours of his lack of a distinctive moustache and accent received a lot of coverage in the weeks before Christmas. In reality, Sarah says, 
a great deal of thought went into exactly how to present these well-known characteristics in a new and interesting way to the TV audience. I did try to kind of wind some people up when they went, oh, what do you mean? What are you doing? Poirot hasn't got an accent. It's like, yeah, no, I completely changed it. He's gonna, he comes from Macclesfield. And, you know, like, just because obviously, I mean, he's a, he's a francophone Belgian. He's going to have an accent. He's not going to sound like he's from Texas or Pansto or something. Um, I think what we, were, when, what we were trying to do, we had a lot of conversation, myself and Alex, the um, Alex Gabassi, the director, and with John, and it was I was very keen to do something really organic with the accent because I wanted to sort of I wanted it to feel like um, that it wasn't a kind of out there sort of accent, but that it was actually somebody who had learned English as as a new language, and they had those precisions and those hyper corrections. But underneath, you could feel the rhythm of the original French, and that was what informed the accent. Agatha Christie's work is so well known, and a lot of people are really interested in the decisions that Sarah makes as she turns the original books into new TV series. At times, she does choose to diverge from the source material, most notably in Ordeal by Innocence, where her adaptation has a different ending to Christie's novel of the same name. The intention is always, she says, to produce something fresh and entertaining for the viewer, whether they're a long-time Agatha Christie fan, very familiar with the canon, or entirely new to the work, just switching on after a big Boxing Day tea. Either way, she feels great pressure and responsibility to get it right. Pressure and responsibility, yes, of course. I feel huge pressure and huge responsibility to to write what... Oh, God, to be entertaining. So doing something that people enjoy, doing something which is satisfies me as a writer that I feel that I've told a really good story and a really emotional story that I've told the essence of the the the, um, the you know that the spirit of Christie is absolutely alive that I you know that those preoccupations and the things that she's always chasing throughout decades and decades of a really long writing career are there but you know any writer that tells you that they don't feel pressure and responsibility is lying every single page every single line of dialogue every single new scene is absolutely terrifying the first part of the ABC murders airs this evening if you're listening to this episode in the UK and on the day it comes out. If you're elsewhere or at another time, I'm sure it'll be available on demand very soon. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll just say that I found it really atmospheric and very evocative of the time that Christie was writing about. If the novel is new to you, I highly recommend going and reading it after you watch the series, especially if you're interested in more details about how the railway aspect of the plot works. Even as we're enjoying this one, though, Sarah is already gearing up to get to work on the next Agatha Christie adaptation for next Christmas. It's such a big part of the schedule that multiple years are already planned out, and there's a very distinctive life cycle to the work. By the time um, we're in this sort of process, I'm, I'm reading for potentially the next one. And once it's sort of gone out at the beginning of the new year, then I go and say, look, this is what I think I'm going to do. And then we kind of um, well, people sort of discuss it and I say, no, that's what I'm going to do and then I go off and write it and then I write it again and then we start working on it and get in the cars together. So it, it sort of takes, um, there's a kind of year life cycle to it 
which sort of starts pretty much round about this time, just as we're, or sort of, it sort of starts as we come to the end of filming where we start loosely talking. And then I generally sort of start um, writing when, when we've, when, when, you know, the current broadcast is sort of done because I don't know about other writers, but I kind of like find it really difficult to concentrate when I've got something that's about to go out. And I sort of pace and worry and dither. And so I can't really concentrate until it's done. So that's a sort of life cycle. And then we film over the course of the summer into the autumn and then we're in the edit and then we're all ready for the full roundabout this time of the year. These adaptations have been a great success for the BBC and seem set to stay at the heart of their Christmas commissioning for years to come. Agatha Christie wasn't always quite so positive about the screen adaptations of her work, though. She disliked it when the intricate plots she'd worked so hard to create were simplified, and she often felt that the new dialogue given to her characters wasn't plausible. In the 1952 novel Mrs McGinty's Dead, the character of Ariadne Oliver, herself a detective novelist bearing a striking resemblance to Christie, expresses what has often been read as the author's own distaste for adaptations. She says to her friend Hercule Poirot, You've no idea of the agony of having your characters taken and made to say things that they never would have said and do things that they would never have done. Who knows what Agatha would have thought of John Malkovich's Poirot or any of the other versions of her stories that have appeared in the last nine or so decades. There's no way of knowing. An endless speculation about this or that detail doesn't really advance anything. Some people prefer Joan Hickson's Miss Marple to Geraldine McEwan's, and David Suchet's Poirot to Kenneth Branagh's, and others still prefer to read rather than watch. Whatever your favourite is, there's still something rather wonderful about tuning in at the darkest time of the year, full of good food and festive cheer, and knowing that the rest of the nation is also watching a twisty, impossible plot play out on the screen. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, the tragic tale of Edith Thompson. <laughs>